now. Well. I'm late. I'm sorry. How are you today? Better than last night. Well, I could agree on that. For all the fun to be had while watching Howard Hawks' The Big Sleep, the film is not all that well directed. If Hawks' intention were to keep his audience in a state of confusion, he certainly achieved his goal. But surely, when directing a murder mystery, you need to find that line between concealing enough for the mystery to be sustained and revealing enough so that the mystery can be understood. Because, if an audience is uncertain as to why things are happening, let alone what is happening, not only are they confused, they are also emotionally disengaged. And when an audience disengages, you lose their attention, and that is that. So why is it that almost 60 years after it was released, are we still engaged by the big sleep? And moreover, why is it universally celebrated? In a 1970 interview at the American Film Institute, Hawkes suggested that audiences aren't really all that interested in plot. Everyone, he said, has seen every plot 20 times. What they hadn't seen is characters and their relation to one another. Here is Howard Hawks. I found out for the first time that you don't have to be too logical. You should just make good scenes. The camera likes some people and other people they don't. The camera does not like. And the people that it likes can't do any wrong. Of course, for Hawks it helped that his two lead characters in The Big Sleep were played by Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, two actors who had met on Hawks' previous film To Have and Have Not, where they had shown such chemistry that even before that film was released, Warner Brothers wanted Hawks, Bogart and Bacall to make another. The Big Sleep was quickly chosen as the appropriate material, but in hindsight, perhaps it was chosen too quickly. So you're a private detective? I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Ah, you're a mess, aren't you? Hmm. I'm not very tall, either. Next time I'll come on stilts, wear a white tie and carry a tennis racket. I doubt if even that would help. It wasn't just the stars and director who were reuniting. It was the writing team as well. To Have and Have Not was based on a novel by one of America's greatest authors, Ernest Hemingway, and it had been adapted by Jules Furthman and another of America's greatest authors, William Faulkner. For The Big Sleep, the studio was banking on the skills of yet another of America's greatest authors, Raymond Chandler, with Furthman and Faulkner once again reporting for duty. Fresh to the team was Lee Brackett. Brackett had begun her career as a short story writer in the male-dominated genre of science fiction. But it was her first novel, No Good from a Corpse, a Chandler-esque hard-boiled mystery that had caught Hawkes' eye. Hawkes did not want Chandler to meddle in the adaptation of his own novel, so he opted for the next best thing and instructed his secretary to get me that guy, Lee Brackett. Despite that initial faux pas, the adaptation and production went smoothly but even though filming wrapped in January 1945, the film was not released until August the next year. They want 5,000 for the negative and the rest of the prints. And the demand came how? A woman telephoned me shortly after this thing was delivered. What else was there? Does there have to be something else? Well, this thing isn't worth $5,000 to anybody. Well, they think it is. Why? The woman said if they didn't get the money today, I'd be talking to my sister through a wire screen. She said there was a police jam connected with it. What kind of a jam? I don't know. 
By the time the film had been edited and scored in March 1945, the Allies were closing in on victory in both Europe and the Pacific, and the studios wanted to release their war-focused films before they lost their topicality. And so, non-war-focused films were held back. But there was another reason why The Big Sleep was delayed. Reshoots. Which was fair enough. Novels are never published off a first draft, a song will go through several incarnations before it is recorded, and playwrights will often open their shows out of town before heading to Broadway. The thing about The Big Sleep was that Chandler's novel had a labyrinthine plot, and so the assumption was that Hawks had somehow made it even more complicated. But if the reshoots for The Big Sleep were to clarify things, how is it that the finished film is so hard to follow? Hello, Bernie. Yeah, it's mono. How you fix for red points? I haven't got any. <laughs> oh, who has? Reason I asked was I got some cold meat set out. Might interest you. What are you talking about? You boys find a gun on Owen Taylor when they fished him out of the drink last night? Yeah, it come under the heading of police business. Yeah, I know it'd come under the heading of police business, but if they did, it had three empty shells in it. Honeymoon. You come up to 7244 Laverne Terrace off Laurel Canyon Road, and I'll show you where the slugs went. I'll be right out. I'll be waiting for you. Back in the mid-1990s, the UCLA Film and Television Archive located a print of the original 1945 cut. And if you compare that pre-release version to the one everyone knows today, the differences are clear. The earlier version is paradoxically the one that is easier to follow. While it is the 1946 version, with its rewrite and reshoots, that is well-nigh impossible to understand. Here is a clip from the 1945 pre-release version in which Marlowe and the LAPD discuss the case. You heard about the car was lifted out of the Pacific Ocean last night with a dead guy in it. What about it? And the dead guy was chauffeured to a rich family that was being blackmailed on account of one of the daughters. Mr. Wilde recommended Marlowe to the family through me. Marlowe's been playing them kind of close to the vest, that's why. I love private dicks that play them close to the vest. And you, olds, you don't have to be so coy about it. I don't have to be coy. It isn't often I get a chance to be coy with you or spend half my time digging up stuff your men don't see. My men don't need That's enough of that. The way Hawks figured it, the audience didn't need to understand the plot's minute intricacies. They just needed to feel Bogart and Bacall. By feeling, they knew that although Vivian Rutledge may have been up to no good, she was smart, sassy and independent, and that's why Philip Marlowe likes her. And that's all the audience really cares about. So the reshoots involved new scenes with Bogart and Bacall sparking off one another, and those scenes replaced other scenes that actually helped explain the plot. Tell me, uh, what do you usually do when you're not working? Mm. Play the horses, fool around. No women? Well, I'm generally working on something most of the time. Could that be stretched to include me? Well, I like you. I told you that before. I liked hearing you say it. Mm. But you didn't do much about it. Well, neither did you. Well, speaking of horses, I like to play them myself. But I like to see them work out a little first. See if they're front runners or come from behind. Find out what their whole card is. What makes them run. The detective story can be traced to around the 4th century BC with Sophocles' Oedipus Rex. There, the newly crowned king of Thebes wanted to know why his land was beset by famine, drought and plague. Evidently, a crime had been committed that was affecting not just society, but nature as well. So the detective story isn't just who done it. It is about the wider world and how we affect it. 
But by the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the likes of Edgar Allan Poe, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Agatha Christie had reduced the murder mystery to little more than a game designed to show the detective's ingenuity in solving the puzzle. But with Chandler, the murder mystery reclaimed its wider view and that was because Chandler had something to say about the wider world. But curiously, having something to say about the wider world was something Howard Hawks was vehemently against. He didn't believe in films having any particular meaning. He just believed in entertainment. Here is Hawks again. Well, the French have been very kind to me. And when I go over there, I meet with 10 or 15, 20 directors. And they attribute an awful lot of things to me that I have no thought of. Why did you do this? I said, I liked it. I thought it was funny. Another curious thing about The Big Sleep is that we're told it's film noir. But the reshoots were filled with such witty banter between Bogart and Bacall. That light humour so diluted the noir taste that what Hawks served up was café latte. Consider by contrast Robert Siedmack's masterful adaptation of Ernest Hemingway's short story The Killers. That was released in the same year as The Big Sleep. But with its hard-as-nails dialogue, straight-faced deliveries, brassy score, chiaroscuro lighting, and a high sequence delivered in one extended and breathless shot, The Killers isn't another league. Tweed. I was over at Henry's. A couple of guys came in and tied up me and the cook. They shoved us in the kitchen. They said they were going to shoot you when you came in to supper. Well, George thought I ought to come over and tell you. There's nothing I can do about it. I can tell you what they look like. I don't want to know what they're like. Thanks for coming. Don't you want me to go and see the police? No. That wouldn't do any good. Isn't there something I could do? There ain't anything to do. Couldn't you get out of town? No. I'm through with all that running around. Why do they want to kill you? I did something wrong. Once. Enough about style. Let's get back to content. Along with the likes of John Ford, Alfred Hitchcock and Orson Welles, Hawks is considered one of Hollywood's great auteurs. John Ford famously said that he made westerns. More than that, Ford redefined the western. Likewise, Hitchcock was not so much synonymous with thrillers as we define thrillers as Hitchcockian. Orson Welles didn't redefine any genre, but he did redefine cinema. Hawks worked across a variety of genres, screwball comedy, gangster, detective, melodrama, musical, sci-fi horror, historical epic, war picture, action-adventure, and western. But he never redefined any of them. What Hawks did do was redefine gender. There are women in film, and then you have Hawksian women. Intelligent, confident, independent, and sexually liberated. Just look at 20th Century, Bringing Up Baby, His Girl Friday, Ball of Fire, To Have and Have Not, and The Big Sleep. Which means that the women are on a par with men. At least, that's what we're led to believe. Hawks made 47 films, and of those, the Hawksian woman can only really be applied to about half a dozen. What is more, those genres in which the Hawksian woman is most evident, the screwball comedy and noir detective picture, need such women in order to function properly. Do they prove the rule, or are they the exceptions? Truth be told, 
Hawkes didn't practice what he fictionalized. In real life, he had no time for feminism and was a longtime advocate of the casting couch. He was also a virulent anti-Semite, all of which further undermines the suggestion that Hawkes was an auteur. One hallmark of an auteur is that their films reflect their personalities. So what was Hawkes' personality? Nancy Slim Keith, the second of his three wives, described him as a pillar of nothingness. But to others, namely his drinking and fishing buddies, Hawkes was a marvellous raconteur and bon vivant. Then again, they would say that, wouldn't they? I didn't have a chance to thank you for what you did back there. You looked good, awful good. I didn't know they made him like that anymore. I guess I'm in love with but either way, when Hawkes wanted to flourish in his films, he didn't go for visuals and he didn't go for messages. He went for verbal and physical interplay between his leads. So in that respect, The Big Sleep is well directed. So well directed, in fact, that audiences and critics have willingly overlooked its narrative confusion. <laughs>